Welcome in the latest episode of that SEC podcast. I'm your host, Michael Bratton. I go by SEC Mike on Twitter. And hey, we got a great show lined up for you. Got some news and notes around the SEC. We got comments from Kirby Smart and Sonny Dykes as they go head-to-head. A little under a week in the national championship game. So excited about that. And back for a Stephen Lassen, normally on a Tuesday, this time it's on a Wednesday. Stephen Lassen Wednesday for the first time. We're talking the national championship, SEC bowl season. And ask Stephen to go on a deep dive here. Athlon Sports senior editor, of course. Athlon Sports early look ahead to the top 25 for next season. But because things are such in flux in college football, with the portal, with coaching coordinator changes waiting to happen. Steven couldn't even give us a full top 25, so he's going to give us his top 15, and then we'll talk about the SEC team still in discussion for the remaining 10 spots in the preseason poll. So great conversation with Steven. We'll get to that in just a minute. But first, let's kick it over to Kirby Smart. This is an SEC show. Of course we're going to start with the number one team, Kirby Smart's Georgia Bulldogs trying to go back-to-back national champions. And he's impressed. Maybe a little coach speak. Always a little coach speak from Kirby. But he is impressed with TCU and their ability to come back in the fourth quarter all season long. Of course, maybe he's trying to suggest they're going to get out to an early lead in the championship game. I'm sure he wouldn't admit to that. How did Stetson Bennett become so clutch in the fourth quarter? Kirby discusses that, as well as a somewhat of an injury update. Darnell Washington, Warren McClendon, Chaz Chambliss. Kirby asked about all three of those players. Let's kick it over to Kirby from the Tuesday media teleconference. Kirby, I know you've uh, taken a look at TCU. Can you kind of give us a, a, a crib notes version of what makes TCU uh, unique? Uh, offensively and defensively, and I know it always comes back to players, but they do play a three-three-five that we don't always see. And and obviously, um, Coach Dykes is revered for some of his offensive strategies. Yeah, yeah, tremendous team, uh, tremendous program. He's he's won where he's been. He's done a great job. Um, th- their kids believe. You know, they have. Uh, I feel like just reading and listening um, about them, a lot of similarities. Um, to our kids in terms of the culture created there, um, the way they play, play, the way they believe. Um, you know, I think I saw a stat they have the, the most comebacks in, in, in college football, you know, in the fourth quarter. And that, that shows what your mental makeup is. You know, their, 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 their conference have been in a lot of tight ball games and, uh, they've won. Um, those type ball games and uh, done an incredible job uh, with what they do and they create um, really tough situations defensively do an incredible job on special teams have one of the best returners that I've probably ever faced in the return game and score a lot of points on, off- on offense with a Heisman Trophy uh, candidate quarterback so it's a, it's a recipe to be playing for the national championship. Uh, Kirby good afternoon uh, you know I know you made a full hand loop reference to Stetson over the weekend. I mean, what? But in the fourth quarter, he has been on point, a huge rating, no interceptions. You know, what have you seen in his evolution that's made him so good in crunch time in the fourth quarter? 
Um, I think it's his mental disposition. I think he uh, uh, he he you know he he doesn't he doesn't think of the moment any different uh, than you know the first quarter from the fourth quarter. He doesn't feel that he he is a processor. He is a deep thinker. He um, just goes through the process of what he's going to do and doesn't let it let it affect him. He's never real real high. He's never real real low. Um, which I think is a great trait for a quarterback, and um, I think that helps him in the fourth quarter to be able to go execute. He has a lot of confidence. Um, I think his coaching staff does a great job preparing him um, to be in those moments. How about uh, Darnell and um, Warren and uh, Chaz? Can you update us on those their injury status? Yeah, we're, we're hopeful to get all those guys back. Now on the flip side, we got Sonny Dykes here, TCU head coach, of course and gives a little bit more in-depth injury update on one of their key players for the Horn Frogs. Kendra Miller, running back, 1,400 rushing yards he's had this season, 17 touchdowns. He's an integral part of uh, TCU's offense. Got knocked out early of the Michigan game, I believe, and now he's questionable to play in the national championship game. Update, latest update from Sonny Dykes, as well as uh, the time Mike Leach briefly convinced him to go to a 64-team playoff format. Let's kick it over to Sonny Dykes. Hey, Sonny, I was just uh, wondering how Kendra Miller's feeling and what's his status. Hey, Barrett. Um, you know what? I think he's, he's feeling pretty good. You know, we um, got a pretty good eval on him. Excuse me. Um, night before last, when we got back um, from um, uh, you know from Phoenix, you know he was pretty sore. Uh, woke up yesterday, felt a little bit better. I just saw him a little bit ago. He's feeling better today. So you know, I, I would I would say he's probably questionable. Uh, would be the, the way I would present it. We'll see how he um, part, you know progresses through the week. See how he feels, and then we'll try to make a determination as we get closer to game time whether we think he's going to be ready to play or not. Hey, Sonny, um, I wonder, you know, seeing what Tulane has done. Obviously, Utah has been in uh, in the Rose Bowl two straight years. What you guys have done, I, I, I don't know if you've got ready to go, but if you thought how cool this would be with with sixteen teams. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you know, I, I have. I mean, I've thought that way for a long time. Um, you know, there was probably about a six-hour period at some point in my life uh, in the middle of the night where Mike Leach had actually convinced me it was good for a 64-team playoff. Um, <laughs> that's a, but that's a whole other story. And, and like I said, I woke up the next day and, and talked myself out of it. Um, yeah, I think I think – I think 12 is going to be great. I mean, look, I think there's a lot of good football teams that deserve to be in the playoff. And, you know, I've always believed that the cream rises. And, you know, the more opportunities that schools, uh, you know, outside of the traditional brands get, the more those those schools can become traditional brands. You know, I think if you exclude them, it's hard to break in. And I think this will give a lot of schools, you know, like TCU, uh, an opportunity to – you know, to get in the mix and show what they're capable of. And, you know, we were fortunate this year to get in into the 14 playoff, and we were fortunate to, to beat a very good Michigan team in and, and advance. And, uh, you know, in our our prizes, we get to play Georgia now. And so, um, yeah, but I, I, look, you can't help but 
look at, at how much fun it's going to be when we get to that 12. And it's going to be, like everything else, it's going to be a work in progress, and there's going to be some things that I'm sure we don't like about that. But at the end of the day, the best thing is it's going to, it's going to include more people, and I'm, I'm a big believer in inclusion, and um, and so I, I think it's going to be a good thing. So you, you sat through that Mike Leach conversation about '64, huh? Oh yeah, no, I, it, not not <laughs> not just uh, for for about six years. Right. Okay. All right. And he, you know what? And he made some he made some pretty good points. You know, uh, I just kept coming back to him and saying, "Well, Mike, we can't play two games a week like the right. game is <laughs> All right, that was just too good not to share. I had to share that one. But quickly, other news and notes around the SEC. We already hit on the fact that Bryce Young, Will Anderson, and Jameer Gibbs have all declared for the NFL draft. Now three players in Alabama secondary off to the NFL. Brian Branch, the safety. Jordan Battle, the other safety. And Eli Ricks. One season at Alabama, two at LSU. Now he's off to the NFL. So Alabama's got a trio of defensive backs to replace in the lineup next season. This is going to be a fascinating offseason for the Crimson Tide. This is, for my money, you know, the, the biggest unknowns surrounding Nick Saban's program entering a spring training camp. I realize they're loaded with talent. No one's sitting here crying for Alabama. But a lot of unknowns with the Crimson Tide heading into this season. We'll get into it a little bit here with Steven. Steven's still high on them Crimson Tide. That damn homer. But just kidding. Alabama, no doubt, they're going to be preseason top five, top two probably. But they got a lot of unknowns to answer. Big spring approaching there in Tuscaloosa. Now we continue to hit on it. Missouri, their defense, going to be a Tough out for everybody next season. Well, the good news continues because Trajan Jeffcoat, outstanding defensive end, he's coming back for the Missouri Tigers. This follows uh, Darius Robinson on the last episode. Go back and check it out if you missed it. But Missouri now has two starting defensive linemen back next season to go along with, uh, I believe they're going to have the entire secondary returning. Missouri, keep saying it, going to be one of the most Stout defenses in the SEC next season. If Missouri's going to take that next step, it's going to be because that defense continues to play at an extremely high level. And it's almost like, I realize all these players, they make their decisions independent of one another, but it feels like these guys are making the decision to come back together. It's almost like they have unfinished business to lead Missouri on the field next season with this uh, Blake Baker defense. So can't wait to see the Tigers Hit the field next fall. And then last little nugget here, A&M, another defection of the transfer portal. Defense alignment, Anthony Lucas. So much buzz with him last spring. He was the number 10 defense alignment in the country this time last year. Number one recruit from the state of Arizona in the transfer portal. This is just another piece to Texas A&M's historic recruiting class out the door after just one season in College Station. Texas A&M's getting hit hard via the transfer portal. More players in the portal than any program, not only the SEC, but in the country, Texas A&M Aggies. And I asked Stephen about it. You know, we're 
breaking down this preseason top 25, no mention of A&M. How unusual is that? But on the flip side, maybe that's what's due down there in College Station. A little less buzz. Got to earn the respect this time around. Can't be overhyped if you're not hyped at all. So big, big offseason coming in College Station. And it's going to be without Anthony Lucas on the roster headed to the transfer portal. All right, but hey, that's enough of me sitting here spieling. Let's kick it over. Our latest interview with Stephen Lassen, senior editor over at Athlon Sports. Hey, we're pleased to uh, once again be joined by a friend of the show, Stephen Lassen. I guess we're calling this Lassen usually Tuesday. It's Wednesday this week. Senior editor, Athlon Sports. Give him a follow at Athlon Stephen. And don't forget to check out his YouTube channel, All CFB365. Stephen, how's it going, my friend? Hey, Mike. It's going great. Happy New Year uh, to you and everybody listening to the podcast. I know I'm a few days late. Uh, different day, but still same college football talk between uh, the two of us. Looking forward to some playoff and some some other stuff. It's, hey, never a dull moment in the world of college football right now. Yeah, and obviously the schedule, like you alluded to, it's a little screwy because of the bowl games and all that. I mean, uh, I love my college football Saturdays, but sometimes it is nice. You know, on a random Tuesday, Wednesday, we're getting these bowl games. We get to enjoy them. Last night was the Rose Bowl, so that's so we had to – delay a day but i do appreciate you hopping on steven but you know we got a national championship to talk about we've got an early look at uh you know the the top teams in the country for next season but before we get to that steven i wanted to just get your thoughts on all the bowl action that we've had thus far everyone in the sec that that made a bowl has has played it already there any highlights games moments anything like that that really stand out to you that you'll remember most about bowl season in the SEC? I think, first of all, it's it's Mississippi State beating Illinois. I think if you're just a fan of college football, uh, just seeing Mississippi State and the emotion behind that victory, remembering Mike Leach for, for four quarters and, and finishing off the season on a high note was probably one of the highlights for me. Uh, just seeing that joy that Mississippi State and, and Will Rogers – they were able to get out of that victory and how much it meant to them. So I think Mississippi State's kind of the highlight so so far outside of the the playoff victories uh, by Georgia and of course TCU from the Big Twelve. But you know, outside of Mississippi State, we had some great games in the SEC bowl season. I mean, can Kansas and Arkansas? Uh, I, I was doing the most SEC thing ever. While the Liberty Bowl is on, I was at Cracker Barrel trying to watch the <laughs> Kansas-Arkansas game. And uh, I think I may have been texting you at the same time. So I was getting my my full SEC experience <laughs> when the Liberty Bowl was on. But, man, uh, what a great game that one was. Uh, the, the Peach Bowl, of course, with Georgia. And uh, also just the, the kind of performances by some players, too. I, I thought Bryce Young ending the his uh, you know career at Alabama on a high note. I thought Joe Milton was excellent in the Orange Bowl, too. So I think there are some individual performances that we can also take from bowl season and just remember some of the highlights from this year. And no doubt, uh, you know, we were talking right before we uh, went on air here that uh, the semifinals, I mean, it was the best we've ever had. We've had nine of these things. There's usually so many blowouts and and non-competitive games. But, I mean, both of them, all-time classics, 
What's your thoughts uh, on those matchups? TCU beating Michigan, of course, and Georgia, the uh, reigning national champions, surviving Ohio State. Uh, thoughts on those matchups? You know, we've had the the playoff. You mentioned it there for for nine years, and I think before Saturday's games, we had just three of those matchups that were decided by one score. So the fact that we had two games that were that competitive and came down essentially to the last play, last drive of the game uh, was a treat for us college football fans because I just assumed that, hey, that's like it's history. And you looked at the spreads coming into the game. Uh, you know, Michigan was favored by more than a touchdown. The line kind of fell before Georgia and Ohio State, but it, it had hovered around a touchdown. So honestly, I, I expected two games that would just end up probably around 10 or 14 points. And we got two close matchups. I think on specifically in the game, I, I do think Georgia didn't play its best game, but found a way to win against Ohio State. And I think given that Ohio State is either the second, third, fourth, you know, best team on a neutral field, power rankings, however you want to put it, uh, to be able to win that game and to see how many flaws that Georgia had in that game. It ought to give Georgia some confidence going into next week's game. TCU, I think the the other thing for them is like this is one of the most unlikely title runs we've had in college football. Uh, they were not picked to finish, you know, in the top five of the Big Twelve. I think during the year, a lot of people, including myself, thought they wouldn't even finish undefeated uh, and get to the playoff. And here they are. Not only did they win, they're in the national championship. So, uh, just looking back on that game, not only was it just a back and forth kind of fun game, but you also saw some things I think that Georgia can take advantage of. And also some things I think that Georgia needs to be wary of going into Monday night's game, but hopefully we have a good game, even though the spreads around two touchdowns right now. Now, not to uh, call you and Athlon out, Stephen, I would, I would never dare to do that, but because I believe you guys are the most accurate published uh, preseason college football magazine out there, but I got to ask, where did you, if you have on the top of your head, where'd you have TCU in the Big 12 uh, this preseason? I think it was seventh. So uh, <laughs> not good. Um, you know, I think in a very kind of big picture sense, I think there's a TCU is, and it also holds true, I think, with, with Ole Miss and I think with USC to some extent. You've had, uh, you know, coaching changes plus transfers and the hit rate on them have been really high. And TCU sort of, you know, everything about this run is just, you know, it's unprecedented almost. I mean, to be picked low, they weren't even in a bowl game last year. They have a first-year coach. The starting quarterback who went to New York for the Heisman Trophy ceremony wasn't even the starter at the beginning of the year. So I think it's everything has just clicked for them this year. They've also, I think the Big 12 was not as strong as we're used to seeing. I mean, Oklahoma was 6-7. and seven. Texas was eight and five. It's just, it wasn't a great year for the big 12 coming into the season and it was kind of wide open. And when it, with a team like TCU, everything just seemed to hit with coaching changes, transfer additions, um, Max Duggan playing well at quarterback. I think that sort of spurred them to this point. So everything clicked and it ended up making a run to the national championship game, which is pretty remarkable. Well, not to mention they had, uh, I believe the, uh, the Frank Burles award winner at offensive play caller, Garrett, Riley, I think is his name. Uh, the defensive coordinator, Joe Gillespie. This is a guy that uh, our, our friend, friend of the show, Dave Bartu, has been saying this guy's a rising star. So, you know, 
it, perfect storm, like you said, maybe the best combo of coordinators, at least currently in the country. I think you can make the case for TCU. But but I, you know, piggybacking off those thoughts, Stephen, do you think, and maybe this is an unanswerable question, but do you think with NIL and the transfer portal and all this that we'll get more of these stories? And, and particularly with the playoff expanding, does that at least give because I got to imagine, Stephen, I, I mean, I, we love college football more than anything. I get it. But even we have to concede to some people that sometimes, yeah, it is Alabama, Georgia, and Ohio State, and throw in a wild card that will get smashed. You know what I mean? So, and that's not good for the sport. It is good for the sport for a team like TCU that no one, even the, even the experts, saw coming. Hell, I don't think TCU fans, diehards, saw this coming. So I think it is good for the sport. And do you think with the changes in recent seasons that we'll get more of this uh, in the years to come? I think on your first point about new faces in the playoff, I think one of the things that when you always talk to college football fans who weren't like super diehard nerd types like me, they always say, well, it's just the same team. So I'm getting bored with Alabama. I'm getting bored with Georgia. If you're an Alabama or Georgia fan, you're not bored because you're dominating the sport. <laughs> but I do think having a storyline like TCU, especially for the average fan, is probably pretty interesting. I mean, going up against Georgia, it's kind of like, hey, here's here's the David versus Goliath storyline. TCU um, coming out of the Big 12, it's not the obviously not the biggest school like Texas in terms of name value or um, you know, attendance, student attendance, fan attendance, and they got a chance 60 minutes away from a national championship. So I think the the storyline will pull average fans in overall. I think on the going forward for a 12-team playoff, I do think we'll see some things like this. You know, you'll see a, a TCU, you'll see someone come from off the radar and make the playoff. I do think it may get a little tougher to get to the national championship, though. Because I do think you're going to need, you know, blue chip talent. You have to have a, you have to be a Georgia and Alabama because, you know, in a in a one game scenario like we saw on Saturday, if TCU had to play Michigan, they had to play Ohio State, then they had to play maybe Alabama in the playoff. It'd be hard to see them, I think, getting through that. But I think in the 12 team playoff era, we're just going to see new faces maybe pop in and out of that 12 team mix. So maybe it's one year it could be like an Arkansas goes from five and seven uh, to nine and three, which is just enough to get into the playoff and, and some stories like that. So it's good for the sport to have new faces. It's going to be harder, I think, for a TCU in the future to get to the championship. But at the same time, I think we'll see some new faces rotating the playoff every year because the portal, because NIL allows you to kind of reload or turn over a roster much quicker. And one great point that you made a couple weeks ago, Stephen, when we were discussing the new 12-team format, you know, I rarely see you get angry. I don't know if that's the right word, but you you called out the the format, and I think you were dead on because uh, had we had the, the 12 format, hey, we're going to it, we're embracing it, I get it, but it's a little screwy how they're doing the home field advantages because Clemson would have had a, a bye week, and, and they're – Hey, I'm not trying to take away from Tennessee, but that that is not an elite Clemson team. And the other one will be Utah, which just got I, I get their quarterback went down, so that's maybe you could you could take issue with this. But they got the brakes beat off them in the Rose Bowl. Those teams did not deserve a, a bye week in the new format. So 
yes, it's it's probably good they're going to twelve, but we need to we need to fix that little hiccup in it, don't you think? One hundred and twenty five percent agree with you, if that's even possible. Yeah, I'm frustrated about the format. Like, on what planet does it make any sense if Georgia and Alabama are the two best teams in the country to have one finish at number one and the other to be number five? just because they may have lost a close conference championship game and Kansas state is 10, 10 and three and the champion of the big 12. Like I, I get it. Like we have to incentivize conference championships and, and it was this it's creative and, and it makes, it makes sense of why they're doing this, but I think you should reward the top teams in the country. If they're the top teams. I mean, realistically you could have Georgia, Alabama, Ohio state and Michigan next year as your top four teams. And in the 12 team playoff, you're sitting here looking at all of a sudden the losers of those two games could be five and six instead of uh, three and four and having a much tougher path to the, to the national championship. I think that, and then not having the uh, home games at home sites and playing them at bowl games is a huge mistake. It's bad for fans. And it also doesn't really incentivize, uh, you know, your, your season. If you have a, would you much rather Alabama play a home game in Tuscaloosa or play home game at the Peach Bowl? I, I to me, one of the best things about college football is home sites and the crowd and, and the band and everything like that. So we've got to change those two things uh, beyond. It just doesn't make doesn't add up to me. Right. Well, before we get there, Stephen, of course, we got a championship game to break down. So what's your thoughts here? We're less than a week away from the national championship game, Georgia, TCU, out in Los Angeles in the new SoFi Stadium. Uh, what's your what's your read on this game? I think the first thing that jumps to mind is the sort of unprecedented run by both. We were, We were talking about this with TCU. But also Stetson Bennett for Georgia is 60 minutes away from leading Georgia to history just to be able to go back to back. The first team since Alabama did in 2011 and 2012 to go back to back. It's it's one of the most unlikely stories that I can remember for a starting quarterback, not only to win one national championship, uh, but to go two. After you watched him in 2020, I don't think many people would have predicted that Stetson Bennett could lead Georgia to back-to-back national championships. So I I think you have Georgia pursuing history. You have TCU, the unlikely run to the national championship game. TCU has nothing to lose here. They're the underdog. Uh, They're, you know, two touchdown underdog or so. All the pressure in the world is on Georgia. I think if you're Georgia, I think there are a couple things that, I saw on Saturday that I would be looking for. I think the first thing is don't underestimate TCU. I think Michigan kind of overlooked them a a little bit. I think you kind of picked up on that in some of the media availability during the week that Michigan really wasn't overly impressed with TCU. Probably should have spent a little bit more time worrying about TCU. Uh, I also think, you know, limiting the mistakes, like it sounds simple, but look at Michigan's mistakes on Saturday. They gave a, 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 kind of questionable play on the goal line by calling the Michigan special. They fumbled on the goal line. They threw two pick sixes. And I don't think if you're Georgia, I think TCU is the underdog for a reason in this game. You don't want to give them a reason to hang around. If you can limit those mistakes and you play a clean game, you're probably going to win. I think the other matchup for me that I'm watching is the, the line of scrimmage. The TCU fared a lot better 
than most people think in that game uh, going into that game. I think the prevailing thought was Michigan offensive line won the Joe Moore award. They've been running the ball well all season. TCU gives up about 150 rushing yards a game. There's no way they can slow down Michigan. They pretty much did. Uh, Michigan's first rushing play went for a long way, but they did a much better job after that. I think the X factor for me in all this is I think Georgia can run between the tackles and or between the guards and the interior a little bit better than Michigan did. And I think for, for really the biggest reason is Michigan's running back, Donovan Edwards, is more of a speed guy. I think Georgia can come after TCU with some bruisers and, and McIntosh and, and Edwards and Milton. All of those guys, we saw this on Saturday in the Peach Bowl of how well they were running and especially running over some Ohio State defenders in the process. So I think for Georgia, it's it's to me, it's play a clean game, limit the mistakes, win the battle in the trenches. And also, I think Stetson Bennett has to be a little bit cleaner overall. I think there was he threw an interception. Thought he made some, uh, you know, a few other questionable throws in there as well. One other point that I would make on TCU, I, I think they have won different ways this year, and I think it's hard to, you know, pinpoint like a, a, they they have to have everything go right. I think on Monday night to win this game, they can win with their defense. We've seen that they can win with the running game. Their top running back is questionable. But I think it really all all boils down to one thing for them, and that's Max Duggan and the receivers. If Georgia is giving up passing yards like they did to Ohio State, this could be a four quarter game. If they keep it in check, you know I think Georgia controls uh, the game throughout. So I, I think having don't take TCU too lightly. They can win different ways, and don't make the same mistakes as Michigan. And if you're Georgia, you probably walk out of there with the championship. Right, and that's right where I was going to go, Stephen, is asking you because, uh, you know, TCU, they did score on two pick sixes. Anytime you get two pick sixes in a game, you you got no business losing it. And they nearly, I don't want to say nearly did, but there was opportunity for Michigan to to come out with a victory. But you could slice it the other way, Stephen, and say, they you know, they got this Heisman finalist quarterback, and he threw a couple of interceptions. And I thought he was a little off. Um, you know, maybe – to your point, if he's if he's plays a much better game, he's going to have to to be competitive against Georgia. But given that we've seen two opponents in a row now, LSU and Ohio State, attack Georgia through the air, I realize Georgia, or excuse me, Ohio State's got one of the best quarterbacks and some of the best receivers. LSU also has a great quarterbacks. And, and great receivers. But does TCU have the weapons? Do, do you think, given the last two weeks or, or two opponents that Georgia has faced and, and been hit over the top, that TCU can have some success doing that? I do. I, I think they can. I, I think for Georgia, you almost have to pick something. Like your pass rush is either got to get there or you just have to create some disruption or you just have to cover a lot better in the secondary than they did Last week, I do think if you were to rate the receiving core, I think Ohio State's is better. I think the challenge that TCU presents is Quentin Johnston, their top receiver, is outstanding. And he took a pass that was, you know, a short screen pass against Michigan and sort of broke a tackle and was gone down the sidelines. It, it gets to your point of, you know, Michigan made a lot of mistakes in that game, TCU made a lot of mistakes. But when they needed to answer, TCU did that. Like they just, Michigan, every time I felt Michigan was ready to get back in that game, 
TCU just punched back. And so I think tackling in space, as small as this sounds, like I think if you're Georgia, you're okay if TCU has a 12-play, 75-yard drive that ends in a field goal. You'll take that. You don't want them to get the the 10-yard passes that become 70-yard sprints by Quentin Johnson and some of those other receivers. The first thing that jumps out to you when you see all their receivers, like they're giants. Like they're 6'4", 6'5". They, they're guys that can run. They have big-time size. So I think there are some matchup problems for Georgia potentially. One thing you brought up I think has kind of gone unnoticed is – Max Duggan for TCU, I didn't think he had a good game on Saturday. I thought he was off on a lot of throws. Yeah, I think he ended up about 14 of 29. The one play for Quentin Johnston went 70-something yards. I mean, most of the – that was for him just completing the short pass and the receiver did most of the work. So I think if you're Georgia, like you're looking at this going, Duggan can hurt you with his legs. He can also hurt you with the big plays. So I think finding some ways to kind of keep him in the pocket – and not allow those TCU receivers to catch and run uh, would be a would be a good thing. But I, I think based upon what Ohio State and LSU did, I think if you're TCU, I think you have to be feeling pretty optimistic about your chances of at least making some plays through the air. Now I don't watch enough TCU to maybe you would have a better uh, understanding than I would, Stephen. But uh, Mississippi State runs a similar defense, three three five under Zach Arnett. Georgia played Mississippi State on the road. And I'm trying to think back to that game. I mean, I feel like Mississippi State held them in check for the most part. The end of the day, of course, Georgia's athletes uh, won out. There were some big plays in that game that that uh, I remember there was the punt return right before halftime that kind of cracked the door for, for Mississippi State. But I have to imagine both of those staffs this week, Stephen, are studying that game, how Georgia attacked the 3-3-5, how the 3-3-5 of Zach Arnett attacked Georgia – um, that's just something I think in, in the back of fans' minds to to consider. Um, could be an advantage for Georgia that they've they've seen this unique defense and had success. Could be an advantage for TCU, knowing you know certain adjustments need to be made. But uh, that just kind of came to my mind as as we got this matchup finalized. Do you, do you think that helps Georgia or, or hurts them? I think it helps them. Uh, now, if, if you ask Kirby Smart this week, he was he kind of downplayed it. Um, maybe he's just being coy or maybe he's not showing his full hand. <laughs> but, you know, it is such a unique scheme. You know, you don't see this kind of 3-3-5 like all over the country. Like Gillespie, who runs it at TCU, was at Tulsa before. And this this defense gave Josh Heupel, when he was at UCF, a lot of trouble. So it is a unique scheme, and they do a lot of things. Like the way that they're built, the linebackers um, are really good at like pursuing and tackling. They try to funnel a lot of that stuff. And then you look in the secondary, the two corners, Hodges, Tomlinson, and Newton, um, were, were pretty good. I mean, they gave up some plays against Michigan, but for the most part this year, um, that was a strength for TCU. So I, I think it helps to, to have some already data on the 335. And it may take Georgia a drive or two to settle in. But to me, you've already seen a similar offshoot of it. So just having that kind of knowledge and background, I think, can help Georgia here. Could also help, um, you know, TCU watching the tape of Mississippi State and seeing maybe some things that they can do that Mississippi State wasn't able to do as well. And I have no idea, Stephen, how similar Lincoln Riley and Garrett Riley's systems are. I would imagine they're they're fairly 
uh, similar though. And, and um, I don't know how many matchups we've seen Lincoln Riley versus Kirby smart. The only one that I can think of was that Epic Rose bowl, but, uh, and completely different teams can def- different players. I get it, but man, that was an all time classic too, that uh, I would imagine Lincoln's probably got some tips for old Garrett to, to attack in this Georgia defense of course, tips and, and actually executing it are two different things, but that could play somewhat of a factor in this matchup too, don't you think? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I suspect that uh, Garrett and Lincoln might be spending some time together on the phone. Um, or or maybe Garrett's just going to stop over at the USC offices this week <laughs> when he goes out there to prepare for the for the championship game. But no, I mean, I think you, you look at TCU and I, and I think the danger of thinking about them is we've talked about Quentin Johnson. We've talked about Max Duggan. Um, there are other receivers too. They're not this kind of finesse, like passing team that's going to try and come out and throw it 50 times. I mean, they love to hit the big plays, but they got after Michigan in the trenches. Uh, You know, they did a good job of getting push in the ground game on things like just short yardage. Uh, They also did a good job creating a couple big plays. They also use, I think, some timely tempo against Michigan, too. Uh, They broke off a big run and it was their backup that that did it. I think that's one of the storylines, too, for Monday night is whether Kendra Miller plays for TCU. If he doesn't, DeMarcado, their backup, is, is solid, but he's not the same type of player. But when they were able to get one big play in the ground, they stayed in that same kind of package. And and, Miss, and Michigan wasn't able to sub, so they caught them again in this kind of uh, you know defensive formation they didn't want to be in and was able to take advantage of it. So I think the danger of TCU is just thinking – they're going to come out and throw it. No, they're going to try and come out and, and establish the line of scrimmage. They're going to try and run it. We'll see Max Duggan use his legs as well. Um, but but overall, I, I think the matchups in this game favor Georgia. Uh, TCU is going to need a lot to go right, including some big plays, including some you know tough yards on the ground to be able to keep this one within striking distance. Sounds like TCU sure could use Zach Evans. In his matchup, oh, he's probably kicking himself. Yeah, yeah, he, they really could. I mean, if you if you give TCU a healthy Kendra Miller and a Zach Evans, they you know they all of a sudden their their odds look a little bit more uh, favorable. But I think that's that's one of the things about TCU that from afar I think you could easily admire is that you know they they've won differently. If they need the defensive stop, they got it. If they need to run the ball, they've been able to do it. And they can do the short pass to, to to a big play with a catch and run. They can also hit the big plays downfield. So they can hurt you a lot of different ways if you're Georgia. And I think that's what makes that matchup fascinating is do they have one more time that they're a 13, 14 point underdog? Can they do it again against the Georgia team that I suspect we will get a much better effort all around after, uh, after the uh, game against Ohio State? All right, so I can't wait for that showdown Monday night. It's going to be a heck of a matchup. But also, Stephen, wanted to have you on to talk about uh, Athlon preseason top 25. And and I threw this to you, Stephen, and you said, man, I can't even put together 25 right now. Everything's fluid. Coordinator changes. Uh, transfer portal. We don't even know the players that are coming back, going to the NFL. There's just too much unknowns at this point in time to really put it out there. So this is all subject to change. (laughs) And I think I've already got Steven second guessing his list 
uh, off air. So uh, why don't you give me, uh, you know, your top 15 that uh, confident, I was going to say most confident, but you're probably not even, that's probably the wrong word. Uh, The least, the least not confident in the others, I guess. But uh, what are you looking at right now? Your top 15 uh, looking ahead to the 2023 season. I'll start where I think the season ends on Monday night. I think Georgia beats TCU. So I'm picking them to finish number one in my er very early, early, (laughs) early top 25 for next season. I think the thing, the theme that I've gotten when I was looking through all these teams is we there's, we don't know as much as we used to about these teams at this point. You, you, in the past, you could pull up the roster and you could say, those 17 seniors are leaving. Here's who we think replaces them. Now with the transfer portal, uh, with the second signing day coming up, you also have super seniors. Like We're still figuring this all out. But I think when you start studying for next season, I mean, Georgia's going to they're going to bring back a lot of roster talent. And, and frankly, I, I think they're the program to beat right now in college football. I think Alabama, the dynasty is not over, but I do think that Georgia is the team to beat. So I've got Georgia at one. I've got Michigan at two. I I think I know there's still, this is where we get into the unknowns is that is Jim Harbaugh on the sidelines next year for Michigan, but they do bring back JJ McCarthy. They bring back Donovan Edwards. So Michigan, once again, I think will be in the playoff mix. Mike was giving me reasons to doubt Alabama at three. And I picked him at three. So, I, you know, I, at this point, again, I think to to Mike's point, I, I think it, you have to sort of default to teams that you expect to be track record, and that's Alabama. So I've got Georgia, Michigan, Alabama, Ohio State at four, USC at five, and I've got LSU at six. Uh, thoughts, Mike? Am I crazy? Hell yeah, you're crazy. We don't know who's going to be calling plays for Alabama. We don't know the quarterback. We don't know the top running back. Uh, let's see. Uh, best defensive player in college football is gone. Pete Golding, will he, won't he be there? I'm sure you're right. Alabama will be there. But at this point in time, we're kind of projecting on a lot of unknowns. So in a month from now, two months from now, once spring rolls around, they'll probably have the answers to all these questions. But right now, I wouldn't even put Alabama in the top three in the SEC. That, and that's that's probably crazy talk, but hey, I'm, I'm just going off of what we've what we've got to work with right now as we're recording January 3rd. No, I I, I think that the questions for Alabama are significant. I mean, we can start a quarterback. I think Ty Simpson or Jalen Milrow, whoever it ends up being, will give them good quarterback play. Uh, but Jermaine Burton and some of the other receivers coming back, they've lost some guys to transfer, but I think they'll be fine at receiver and, and running back. I, I'm a little bit worried about the offensive line at this point. Um, we'll see how the starting five shakes out, especially as we get closer to spring practice. I think putting Alabama in the top four at this point is just sort of a nod that, hey, they've been good. They've got Nick Saban. The schedule's not too difficult next year. Um I think you could also look at this as saying, hey, if you're trying to decide between Alabama and LSU, the game's in Tuscaloosa. It's a huge revenge game. It's not week four. It's later in the season. So by then, Alabama's personnel uh, will probably be sorted out. I do think LSU was the one team, you know, I have them at six right now. They were, I, I considered putting them ahead of Alabama. I, and, and if you move them up, you start talking about LSU being in that three, four, five range where they could easily make the playoff next year. 
I mean, I love the way that LSU's roster is shaping up, especially when you get your your offensive line coming back for next season, one or two potentially starting quarterbacks on your roster. Uh, the receiving core should be one of the best in the SEC. Harold Perkins, we know, is going to create tons of havoc, and they've done a nice job in the transfer portal this this year and last year of trying to reload uh, the secondary, and they get Mason Smith back on the defensive line. So I, I've got LSU at six. Um, I, I think Georgia, to me, was a clear one, but I think once you get past Michigan, you start slotting in Alabama, Ohio State, USC, largely because they have the Heisman Trophy winner coming back at quarterback and LSU. Like I, I think any of those teams could be after Michigan, and, and I wouldn't argue if you if you wanted to bump LSU ahead of uh, Alabama. And and one guy, you, you, you hit on receivers, but um, I, I don't want to overlook – because in the in the bowl game, more and more for LSU, Mason Taylor, the tight end. I mean, isn't that something that I don't know what they're doing up there or what Brian Kelly does, but it seems like every year he's he's got like an all-American tight end. That's his next one. I mean, I, I know he had a good year uh as a freshman, but if he t- continues to take another step outside of Brock Bowers, I don't know if there's gonna be a better tight end in the country than than Taylor there for LSU. No, that's a great point. I mean, first of all, I mean, kind of a surprising, like, you know, freshman season for him. I mean, I, I would not have guessed that this is where he would be at this point of his career after just one season. But Brian Kelly, Mike Denbrock, that staff, I mean, every year at Notre Dame, they churned out a standout tight end. Michael Mayer, uh, I'm sure Georgia fans are still arguing with Notre Dame about whether Brock Bowers or, or Michael Mayer is the best tight end in college football. So I, I just, I think we can expect. LSU to have like all SEC caliber tight ends. You know, that was a room that they were worried about with terms of depth and just talent at the beginning of the year. Not so much now. I mean, they've got one of the better ones in the SEC and one of the better ones in, in college football next year. Hmm. All right. So who who you got uh, after LSU in your early rankings? I've got Penn State at seven. I've got Florida State at eight, hmm. Tennessee at nine, and Washington at 10. I'll touch on Tennessee because I, I think they were a hard team for me to rank. I, I think looking at just what they lose, it's obvious the two receivers, uh, Cedric Tillman and Jalen Hyatt are gone. I feel like Tennessee's just going to reload at receiver. Maybe they don't have the Bolitnikoff Award winner, uh, but I think they'll be okay at receiver. I was encouraged by Joe Milton's performance in the Orange Bowl. It's it's one game. I don't want to overreact to a, a bowl game, but if Tennessee gets that Joe Milton – with a little bit of improvement on defense, and given that the rest of the SEC East outside of Georgia seems to be very much in flux, then I think you feel pretty good about Tennessee. You know, the schedule's not overly taxing either. I think you could chart a path easily to nine or 10 victories right off the bat. So I've got Tennessee at nine. I might be a little too high in them, but I think if Tennessee gets that Joe Milton combined with some other improvements, I think top 10 team seems to be um pretty realistic for for this team and and after losing all those pieces that would be quite an accomplishment and how much of that steven is uh josh heupel's track record where it doesn't seem to matter where he's at or who he's got to work with he produces these quarterbacks that just put up insane numbers and that's not to take away anything from hendon hooker he's an he's an all-time vault now it's one of the best to ever suit up for tennessee i'm not saying Joe Milton or Nico are better than Hendon Hooker or specifically not next season, 
I'm not saying they will be, but it's kind of hard not to see the quarterback putting up a, a ton of uh, production for Josh Heupel. And I think more importantly, and even some Tennessee fans <laughs> ready to run off defensive coordinator Tim Banks after that South Carolina game, they keep getting better and better and better on the defensive side of the ball. They keep getting better talent. I know they're, you know, I'm not sitting here saying they're going to be Georgia on defense, but they I think they'll continue to get better and better on that side of the ball. If the offense does probably take a slight step back, it was that it was like an all-time top three offense this year. If they're top ten next year, but the off the defense takes like twenty spots forward in the uh, efficiency rankings. I mean Tennessee, to your point, they they probably should be a, a top ten team. Yeah, I think if if Tennessee only averages like thirty eight points instead of forty, they're they're still <laughs> going to be pretty in pretty good shape next year. I think you have to view Tennessee's offense almost in the same respect that you view Kirby Smart and defense. They just lost, you know, how many players early to the NFL, and they reloaded to one of the best in college football again. I, I think you can just expect that Hypel and Tennessee are going to put up a ton of points and yards every year. And if Joe Milton doesn't work out, you've got a five-star ready to step in. And you've also got some weapons that look pretty good in the bowl game. Um, Brew McCoy, I think, is really talented. Squirrel White had a great game, too. I suspect that they'll we'll, we'll figure out some other guys that Tennessee's going to have emerge at receiver. But I think if, if Tennessee's going to make the jump from being a number nine team to a playoff team, it's got to, there has to be improvement on defense. It starts with getting better personnel, like you mentioned, and just better play on the field. I think if you want to be optimistic for if you're a Tennessee fan, the defense was better this year. I know they were disastrous at South Carolina, uh, but at the end of the year, I think for the most part, the stats will bear out that they were better, especially against the run in SEC play. And they had a great game plan against Clemson in the, uh, in the orange bowl. So I think Tennessee's on the right track on defense. I still want to see more, but at least if you're Tennessee, you know, going into next year that they're going to be set on offense. I'm not worried about Tennessee's from an offensive standpoint. It may not be as prolific, but it's still going to be very good. Right. So you've given us your top 10, Stephen. Let me ask you this, and this might be counterproductive and, and you may not even want to go down this road, but there's always a team, Stephen. We're not not always, it may be too strong, but seemingly every year now there's a team that's top 10 preseason that just completely falls apart and they had no business being up there. And, uh, you know, let's not project injuries to key players. Nobody likes doing that. And, and let's say all the head coaches and coordinators remain as we currently have them. So not some crazy thing happens, but looking at your top 10, again, you probably hate me even asking this, but if there, if there's one that you could see that you just projected in the top 10 in the country, just uh, maybe not even making a bowl game. Let's put it that way. It, who's the most likely candidate among those 10 and don't say Tennessee. I was going to say, you're asking one of the most indecisive people in the world when it comes to this stuff. I've been, I stared at the spreadsheet and I've been moving teams up and down for the last couple of days. So uh, this is going to be difficult. Um, you know, that on paper, I don't see anyone right now. I, I really think all these teams are in pretty good shape. Now, I think if you want to kind of pick apart the top 10, you could say, I really like Penn State, and that's it, not from what they did in the Rose Bowl. They only lost two games this year to, to Ohio State and Michigan. 
but what if the hype train is is just not there? Like, what what if the, the five star quarterback stepping in just isn't very good? You know, could Penn State regress outside of that? Uh, yeah, I, I think so. Washington, I think at ten, they've got a great offense, but their defense is not great on paper coming into next season. So I could certainly see that maybe number ten is too high for them. But I'll be honest with you, I feel pretty good about most of those teams in the top 10. I would be really shocked if we have a complete regression by one of those, barring some sort of injury or something crazy happening, which I means mean, I just which means I just jinxed somebody <laughs> in the top 10. <laughs> so uh, who you got uh, in, to round out your top 15? Yeah, I've got Oregon at 11, Clemson 12, Notre Dame 13. I've got future... SEC member Texas as the Big 12 favorite for next year at 14. And I've got TCU at 15. You know, to, to be honest with you, we're once you get outside of that top 12 to 13 or so, I think Notre Dame's kind of the cutoff for like you you can jumble up 14 through 30 in a couple different ways. And you're probably not, you know, you're probably going to see this in a lot of early rankings. It's going to be really close. You might be saying, well, it's crazy that TCU is down at 15. You know, I think most over unders for them next year will be nine or 10. Uh, they are going to lose, you know, I would suspect quite a bit off of this team. So not a sign of disrespect of having Texas, uh, TCU at 15, just anticipating some losses. Also anticipate that Texas will take a step forward, uh, which is pretty important given what's going to happen in 2024. So, uh, once you get outside that top 13, I think the storyline is volatility and waiting on some NFL draft decisions and some other things to kind of clear the picture up. How strange is it to have a, again, I know this is very, very early, but how strange is it to not have Clemson in that top five, top 10, where it seems like they've lived for the last decade or so? And and does that speak to... Um, maybe a little lack of confidence in in the coaching staff or, or what is it that's uh, that's got Clemson where you've got them very strange i will tell you that i mean basically for the last i mean basically since Jameis Winston left Florida State you could pretty much pencil in Clemson as the preseason favorite in the ACC i don't think you can do that anymore though I just think that you know you have to be willing to adapt to what college football is right now, which is the transfer portal, and you have to be willing to bring in some guys. Uh, Dabo's been, I think he said before that he's willing to do it, but they have to fit the culture and all this. And and I think there's value in building through the high school ranks. You know, you, that's that's the bread and butter of college football's building. So so I get it. I mean, Clemson's not going to sacrifice. Uh, you know, the long term and, and their goals just to bring in five transfers or so. But it does feel like they, things are maybe a little stale, like offensively, uh, from a staff standpoint, from just a program standpoint. So it it was it was very rare for me to not have Clemson as the favorite. But I also think that you combine some of those questions surrounding the program. I also think Florida State's done a great job of portal evaluation and talent, and they're also just they just won ten games this year. Florida State LSU first game of the year in Orlando is going to be an awesome game because if if this early rough draft of the top twenty five is right, that's two top ten teams, and it might be pretty important for for the playoff purposes later in the year too. Right. So we've still got essentially ten spots in the top 25 preseason that we're not comfortable uh, placing those teams. It gives an indication of how fluid everything is, but 
who are the the SEC teams that uh, are being considered for maybe not even just those 10 spots, but maybe the next 10. So, you know, the, the glut there in, uh, like I told you off air, <laughs> man, I don't five through 12. I, I mean, interchange them. I mean, there, I, I can't tell a difference between many of these. So I would imagine you've got a, several SEC teams that you're, that are kind of hovering in your top 25 range early for next season. Absolutely. I think that's the storyline for me going into the next season for the SEC. It feels like you know who the teams at the top are going to be, but there, I think there is, you know, Georgia and Alabama are both going to be breaking in new quarterbacks and, and Tennessee will as well. Um, LSU has got a great quarterback room. Mississippi state and Arkansas have, have great quarterback situations, but they're also, I think kind of in the middle of the SEC. So I, I think there's some intrigue as to see how this all looks in a few weeks once the roster is finalized, I think there's a case for Ole Miss to be in the top 25 along with Mississippi State. I think you, we'll see how Zach Arnett's coaching staff shakes out, uh, whether or not they make any more additions to the portal. I think it's safe to say Ole Miss will probably be looking for portal help now and, and throughout the offseason. But Jackson Dart, Quinshaw Judkins coming back is a pretty good place to start uh, next season. I think you can make a case for South Carolina, Kentucky, or Arkansas in the top 25. Um, it's You may say those teams have question marks. They do. Everybody else in college football has a ton of question marks, which you get outside like the top 15 or so. If Spencer Rattler comes back at South Carolina, I think it's I think South Carolina moves from a potential maybe to probably a most likely top 25 team. I love the KJ Jefferson, Rocket Sanders pairing on offense, but need to see more from the defensive side of things. And for Kentucky, great job in the portal with Devin Leary and some of the other pickups. Would love to see what happens with the offensive line. Um, and, of course, Justin Rogers transferring, too, um, probably hurts them as well. So I think the middle of the SEC is really fascinating because you can make a case for probably five more teams to be either ranked or in that 20 to 35 range right outside the top 25. What about A&M? Because I, I'm sure they're going to get some buzz and, um, you know, going into what will be year five for, for Jimbo, uh, should they be ranked in the top 25? Or, and perhaps they'll play even better if they're not without the expectations. What's your thoughts on all that? Yeah, I, I'll buy your point of maybe being under the radar probably helps them a little bit, especially after this season. I think there should be there should be something to prove in 2023 just after you know finishing five and seven and missing on a bowl game I, I probably have them closer to 30 to 40 right now not knowing who the offensive coordinator is going to be would like to see a, a few more additions uh, through the portal at either receiver or in the secondary I think they're off to a good start of getting some guys in in the secondary especially Sam McCall who was a big time recruit at Florida State who really didn't play that much so I think they're on the right track, but I also think that there's a lot of questions with this team. I, I would be surprised if somebody has them in the top 25, uh, as we I'm sure we're going to see a lot of these over the next couple of weeks. But I also think that if you wanted to make a case, you could say they've still got a lot of roster talent. If Connor Wigman and the, the new coordinator really hit in year one, there's definitely some upside. So I, I think they're probably in the wild card category of falling somewhere probably in the 30 to 40 type range for me right now. 
Now, let me ask you this, Stephen, uh, as you put together the top 25 for the official, for the magazine and everything, how much, if at all, will you look at um, uh, seniority? I mean, I know we you always kind of look at that, but it seems like, and I meant to ask you about this, about TCU, but it's my understanding that basically across the board, they have got seniors all over that roster. And in now modern age of, of transfer portal NIL, you're just not seeing a ton of that. And I think certainly that has helped teams like Arkansas, uh, South Carolina, Ole Miss in recent seasons, and, and obviously now TCU kind of punching above their weight. Uh, how much of a factor will will you have to do a little deep dive on on just maybe how many seniors and, fit, and this even goes fifth and sixth year players now in the two deep uh, as you project for next season. Yeah, it definitely matters. It, it's something that I, I'm going to be studying a lot more as we get closer. I, I think one of the hardest things about doing this right now is it could literally change in an hour. I mean, I, I could write this article <laughs> like six years ago and I could feel really good about it. And maybe there was one declaration where you move a team down a spot or two. I, I, I've done about 20 of these write-ups. And I've had to make edits to probably about six of them in the last four hours before I started talking to you. And I've had to edit those probably like two or three times now. So it just goes <laughs> to show you like how volatile this is. But I, I do think in, to your point, the very big picture thing is, you know, it's a part of it because like Clemson, you have a lot of internal culture, stability, your fourth or fifth year in the program. Generally, I would say, you know, means good things are coming this season. Uh, on the other side of things, I, I do think we've seen, you know, you could kind of make this argument both ways. I mean, USC was a healthy Caleb Williams away from making the Pac-12 championship game a lot more interesting. And maybe USC makes the Pac-12, makes the, the college football playoff. Um, you know, transfer additions really mean a ton right now if you can hit the right one. So I, it's a little bit 50-50 for me. You know, you, you need to look at kind of internal culture, having – the multiple seniors, but also I think it's really important to be able to go into the portal and bring guys in who can make an impact right away. And, and last thing I got for you, Stephen, uh, this is something I was talking with cousin Shane uh, on one of the recent episodes, but, and I don't know that there's any momentum for any of this, but you know, since the, the COVID year, it, it gave everybody a free season of eligibility. It seems to have balanced college football a little bit to where Yes, Georgia still dominant. Alabama still dominant for the most part. I mean, they they did lose two games, but it seems to have allowed a lot of these other teams that can load up with experienced players, giving them making them more competitive. And and certainly the college football playoff, I think, was served from that this year. Uh, would you support? And again, I got I no idea if this if there's momentum for this or how they do it, but just giving it all players for the rest of college football, an extra year of eligibility, because I think at the end of the day, your juggernauts are, are still going to be mostly consisting of, of freshmen, sophomores, and juniors. <laughs> and whereas, you know, no disrespect, but, but Arkansas, Ole Miss, Mississippi state, you could be completely loaded with fifth and sixth year players. And all of a sudden those matchups are a lot more competitive on the field. I, I think that makes a ton of sense to me um, that, you know, there've been a lot of 
ideas thrown around over the last couple of years because of the way that rosters have just been so chaotic and trying to figure out a way to maybe make it easier on coaches and players and trying to figure out a better system going forward. You know, there's some thought that maybe in the future that the one year sit out rule for transfers comes back and you just add a year of eligibility on the end. I don't know that we're going to get there with that, but I think we've seen that, you know, there there's been a, a kind of a shift to more player friendly proposals and things like that. So I'm all for it. If, if five years of eligibility, which I mean, you kind of have that now because you can play four games in red shirt and still play four more. I think that makes a ton of sense uh, from, from, from my perspective and, and trying to get program growth and giving players more opportunity. So, so I would definitely support that. Oh, wait. Oh yeah. And I know I said last one, I, I just realized this. So they gave, uh, to my knowledge, they gave all the players essentially free eligibility for this bowl game. And I think because they had to, because <laughs> players are hitting the portal and and you just don't have the, the scholarships, uh, some teams anyway. Uh, do you think they should do that universally every year? Because I don't see a, 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 a downside to it because you're getting essentially what you're getting is inexperienced players that could be burned their red shirt and opportunity after a month of practice to to make an impression i just i don't see any downside to that do you zero downside i think it's a great idea it's one of the few good ideas that the ncaa has <laughs> had over the last like you know 20 25 years uh, i mean it makes a ton of sense because not only are you dealing with the transfers you're dealing with you know guys who have already prepared for the next level you have injuries too uh we you know like we found out you know brady cook's been playing with a shoulder injury for most of the season, if let's just hypothetically say that he couldn't start the bowl game and Sam Horn was at four games, you end up with a situation like LSU had uh, last year where you're all of a sudden down to, you know, who who knows what you have at quarterback. So the, the bowl games, and I think Brent Venable said this, they are basically their own season at this point because it's the time off, the roster changes. I think that like let's do this because it gives more players a chance to play. It adds some intrigue to the bowl games and it certainly boosts the roster numbers. So that way, if you have lost 10 or 15 guys to the portal, you're not shorthanded. So I I love that idea. And I think it's something that college football should make permanent. All right, Stephen, can't thank you enough for all the time on the show. Uh, before you go, tell the audience where to find all your outstanding work. Absolutely. You can follow me on Twitter at Aflon Steven. You can also check out all my work at AflonSports.com. I'll have the full top 25 soon as, as soon as I can make my mind up, I guess, on the last uh, 10 to 15 spots. And also you can check out my YouTube page at all CFB365. All right. Just will say thanks again, Steven, for joining the show. Outstanding stuff. You can just sense it from him. The difficulty in putting together this preseason top 25 is probably not even fair to ask him these questions until the portal closes, coordinator decisions are made, head coaching decisions made. <laughs> I mean, the carousel, just when you think it's slowing down, it can get sped up in a hurry by one or two coaches making decisions, jumping to the NFL. It's going to be on the, on the mind of a lot of, of college coaches this offseason. Get to the NFL if they can. But, uh, hey, that's going to do it for this episode of the show. Uh, stay tuned with us. I really appreciate if you're listening to this in early January. you listen to an SEC podcast in early January. You are a diehard. We're going to continue with the coverage. 
going to do season rewinds for every team in the SEC. Got some great content coming your way in the days and weeks to come. But, of course, we got a national championship game on Monday, so we're going to keep previewing that. Hopefully get the Tennessee homer back on the line at some point. If we can get him out of the doghouse. But, uh, hey, that's going to do it for this episode of the show. As always, we appreciate each and every one of you for supporting the show. We'll catch you on the next one. Hey, buddy, this beer's for you, Mike, and Cousin Shane. That SEC podcast loves the pirate, and the pirate loves that SEC podcast. Hail State.